Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. So the other day while watching TV, I saw a Got Milk commercial. You've seen these. They're on once in a while. But for some reason, this one really stood out, since it seemed to be even more deceptive, if that's possible, than the other milk commercials I've seen. And whether it's milk, it does a body good, or the real milk, or got milk, I have to say that I think the dairy commercials are the most deceptive of all. And I don't have to tell you the advertisers are in the business to make money and do not necessarily have the consumer welfare at heart or are in your best interest. So why am I talking about milk commercials on an animal show? Because believe it or not, the practices of most dairy farms are more distressing to the animals than those of meat production. I'm going to say that again. The practices of most dairy farms are more distressing to the animals than those of meat production. Many of us out there believe that cows aren't killed for milk or cheese, so it must be okay. I used to believe that. I used to believe this for many years before I was a vegan. During the years when I was a vegetarian, I was still consuming milk products like cheese. I believed, like many do, that the animal doesn't have to die to give us milk, so therefore it must be okay. This is probably the biggest myth about the dairy industry. Believe me when I tell you that cows on most dairy farms are not the happy cows the industry makes them out to be. And with so many non-dairy alternatives now, consumers have a choice. But actually today, I'm not going to talk about the cruelty inherent in the production of milk, and I'm not going to talk about the immense suffering of the cows on factory farms. What I'm going to talk about are the health concerns related to consuming dairy products. Because many Americans, including some vegetarians, still consume substantial amounts of dairy products. And as you know, they are still widely promoted, not only by the industry, which is expected, but the government as well. And despite scientific evidence that strongly questions their health benefits and indicates their potential health risks. So let me tell you about this commercial I saw. You hear the music, and you see these consecutive black screens with written words. So the first screen reads, she's growing like a weed, hopefully. Next screen, he's becoming strong as an ox, perhaps. Next screen, you're serving enough milk, probably not. Then you hear a woman's voice saying, one out of two kids don't get enough calcium, vitamin D, and potassium. Make sure your kid isn't one of them. One simple way, three servings of real milk a day. Serve real milk at mealtime. Now, most of the information I'm going to relay to you today comes from the organization Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, or PCRM. PCRM is a nonprofit organization that claims to promote, quote, optimal diet for prevention of disease, and that they combine the clout and expertise of more than 12,000 physicians. And some of their priorities include bringing nutrition into medical education and practice, conducting clinical research on healthful diets that build the foundation for the role of nutrition in medicine, educating, empowering people to take control of their health through Kickstart, Food for Life, and other nutrition programs. So they're the real deal. And we've had numerous representatives, physicians, and nutrition experts from the organization on the show in the past. So let's begin by talking about the most pervasive milk myth of all, and that is milk builds strong bones. This simply is false. Science does not support this. 
One large-scale study out of Harvard followed 72,000 women for 18 years. And what did it show? Well, those women who consumed the most milk were just as likely to suffer a hip fracture as those who avoided milk meaning no evidence that drinking milk can prevent bone fractures or osteoporosis. And it's not just in women. There are other studies to support this claim in men. And the study that must have really scared the dairy industry was the one published in the Archives of Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine in 2012. That showed that active children who consumed the largest quantities of milk actually had more bone fractures than those who consumed less. Wow. Milk doesn't actually build strong bones like we grew up to believe it did, like others told us it did, like the milk industry always implied that it did and still does. Yes, of course, calcium is an important mineral that helps to keep bones strong. And yes, indeed, calcium is necessary for healthy bones. But the actual amount of calcium needed for this is easily achieved without consuming dairy products. I mean, I can see how one might believe, by the misleading promotion of milk products, that there's no other way to get adequate calcium in one's diet other than with dairy or its products. And that's also probably the most frequent question vegans are asked after, where do you get your protein from, is if you don't consume dairy products, where do you get your calcium from? Well, I'll tell you, plants. Plant foods such as kale, broccoli, other leafy green vegetables, beans, and lentils, they're loaded with calcium. Whole wheat products, dried fruit, nuts and seeds, almonds. I bet you didn't think almonds are loaded with calcium, did you? Also, I consume a lot of calcium-fortified products such as breakfast cereals and juices. By the way, soy milk and fortified orange juice provides about the same amount of calcium per serving as milk or other dairy products. Did you know that it's possible to decrease the risk of osteoporosis by reducing sodium intake in your diet? You rarely hear this kind of very helpful information. In addition, Exercise is one of the most effective ways to increase bone density and decrease the risk of osteoporosis. And the benefits of exercise have been observed in studies of both children and adults. And of course, you need vitamin D to help with the absorption of calcium. So where do you get your vitamin D? The best natural source of vitamin D is sunlight. Sometimes it just takes only less than 15 minutes of sun exposure to the extremities, hands, and face to be enough to meet the body's requirements for vitamin D. And it depends on the person's skin tone, and it depends on where you live. And during the winter months, you might not get enough from the sun alone, so your diet must provide it. I personally take a vitamin D supplement because few foods naturally contain vitamin D. And you should know that no dairy products naturally contain vitamin D. You can get vitamin D through fortified cereals and grains, bread, orange juice, and soy milk. But like I said, I take a vitamin D supplement, a vegan one, of course. And by the way, finding vegan supplements or vitamins can sometimes be very challenging as many, or most, I should say, contain ingredients derived from animals. For example, gelatin, which is a flavorless food ingredient derived from collagen obtained from various animal body parts, is often the capsule of many supplements. Another example is some calcium supplements are made from oyster shells. But the vegan supplements are out there. And don't be fooled. Remember, the terms organic or natural doesn't necessarily mean vegan. 
Okay, so we talked about calcium. We talked about vitamin D. How about potassium? Because remember in the commercial, it says one out of two kids don't get enough calcium, vitamin D, and potassium, one simple way, three servings of real milk a day. Potassium is an extremely important mineral the body needs, so it's definitely worth mentioning. And from the commercial, one might think it might be difficult to meet your daily potassium requirements if you don't drink milk. I will tell you it's difficult to have a dietary deficiency of potassium since potassium comes in a wide variety of foods you probably already eat. I mean, you would have to really avoid all the fruits and vegetables to be deficient in potassium. Potassium-rich foods include bananas, oranges, orange juice, raisins, cooked spinach, mushrooms, sweet potatoes, potatoes, avocados, tomatoes. You certainly don't need milk to satisfy your dietary potassium needs. So you need to know that this notion that milk is essential to support bone health is simply just wrong. So are there any health benefits of milk? After all, milk does a body good, right? Wrong. Did you know there's a link between consumption of dairy products and cancer? Most significantly, dairy product consumption has been linked to increased risk for prostate and breast cancers. Another, milk and other dairy products are the top sources of artery-clogging saturated fat in the American diet. Milk also contains cholesterol. And as you know, diets high in saturated fat and cholesterol increases the risk of heart disease. Insulin-dependent diabetes or type 1 diabetes is linked to consumption of dairy products in infancy. And then let's not forget the numerous contaminants in milk, which range from hormones to pesticides and other toxins. Antibiotics are often given to cows for certain conditions and inflammations they suffer from due to dairy product practices, which have cows producing much more milk than nature intended. And how about all the other contaminants found in milk products, like melamine, often found in plastics, which negatively affect the kidneys and urinary tract. Furthermore, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that infants below one year of age not be given whole cow's milk. And we now know that breastfeeding mothers can have colicky babies if the mother consumes cow's milk. The cow's antibodies can pass through the mother's bloodstream into her breast milk and then to the baby. Also, did you know that more than 60% of people are lactose intolerant? What does that mean? Well, lactose, the milk sugar, needs to be digested properly by an enzyme lactase. And if you're lactose intolerant, you can't digest lactose because your small intestine doesn't make enough lactase. So what happens if you eat or drink dairy products, you can get a variety of uncomfortable symptoms, including bloating, diarrhea, gas, nausea, abdominal cramping. It seems to me if we were meant to consume lactose or milk, we would all naturally have the enzyme lactase needed to digest it. But that's the thing. Milk is not natural for us to consume. I mean, cow's milk might be natural and ideal for growing baby cows, but fully grown humans drinking secretions from another species is not natural. So bottom line, Milk and dairy products are definitely not necessary in the diet and can, in fact, be harmful to one's health. Thanks for tuning into the show. Don't go away. More with animals today right after the break. 
Hey, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening to Animals Today. Not only can you find us on your radio dial, but you can also listen to the show by going to animalstodayradio.com, or you can subscribe to the Apple Podcast on iTunes. And remember to follow us on Facebook and join the conversation. Animals Today is brought to you by the animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support. Welcome back to the show. So in the last segment, I spoke about the deceptive advertising of milk and this notion that milk and dairy products are essential to support bone health is simply false. And I have to tell you, I really can't mention dairy products without talking just for a couple minutes about one of the most consumed dairy products in America, and that is cheese. Americans love cheese. According to a recent study, Americans are eating 23 pounds of cheese each year, triple the amount consumed in 1970. The average American eats 60,000 calories worth of cheese each year. According to a Boar's Head survey, 87% of respondents would give up either coffee, chocolate, or alcohol before giving up cheese. Also, half of these respondents rank cheese as their first or second favorite food. Here are a few facts about cheese. Typical cheeses are 70% fat, most of which is saturated fat or the bad fat. Cheese is the number one source of saturated fat in the American diet today. Most cheese contains estrogens because dairy cows are pregnant most of the year. Cheese is thought by many to be addictive. Now, I briefly spoke about the addictive nature of cheese on the show about a month or so ago, but very briefly, the main protein in cheese is casein. And when you digest this milk protein, casein, you get a product called casomorphine. Casomorphine, like morphine, triggers the opioid effect in the brain. You know that feeling of pleasure and euphoria? Hence, dependency can develop and it's hard to give up. So now, Peter, I have a craving for a vegan cheese pizza. I do too. Do you? Yeah. Okay. It's a psychological craving, though. I know. And Lori, here's a little bit more about milk, okay? And in particular, the use of the word itself, milk. The battle is heating up between dairy farmers and the dairy industry on one side, And on the other side, the makers of products coming from soy and almonds and other nuts over the use of the word milk. The dairy industry wants to reserve the word milk for its dairy products exclusively. They say that using terms like soy milk and almond milk is improper and deceptive and furthermore that it is fraudulent. Fraudulent because consumers would be led to believe that they are getting the nutritional value in dairy and they are actually not getting it. They're getting something inferior. That's their explanation for the fraud. Well, who gets to decide? It is U.S. Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. He has indicated that he's aware of this simmering problem for a while and it's time to get some resolution here. And he's tipped his hand a little bit And it seems like he is leaning toward favoring the dairy industry and its use of the term milk. 
So now there are hearings that have been held, and there is a period for comments to be provided from individuals and from the industry. Now, to put this into a little bit sharper context, the dairy industry is shrinking. Dairy farms are going out of business at an unprecedented rate. And the rise of alternatives, well, everyone sees that. There's soy products and almond products and rice products and cashew products, all saying that they are a kind of milk. And they like that term also. So who's going to get to own the term milk? It's a hot topic. A statement from the American Dairy Coalition noted that it's crucial for the dairy industry to speak up. We can no longer stand by, it states, to allow plant-based beverages to be labeled as milk. The consumers, they claim, are confused. On the other side of the fence, you've got an organization called Good Food Institute that's based in Washington, D.C., and they claim it's a free speech issue and that there's no way that people are really being misled by the use of the word milk. When you buy soy milk, no one thinks that they're getting anything except for soy-based beverage. And what do they think? The consumers are stupid? Yes. Well, that's what they're saying. They're just trying to protect their turf. Their world is shrinking as these alternatives are becoming more and more popular. And of course, we know they're healthier, so... It's an interesting uh, little battle here, Lori. Well, regarding the deceptive nature of naming alternative milk products, I mean, if you follow that silly logic, why not apply that to cashew ice cream or soy ice cream or vegan hot dogs or vegan hamburgers? That's right. There are lots of similar examples, including nut butter. Can you say this is a nut butter? Can't use the word butter. Who owns the word butter? A lot of battles ahead of us. Okay, and I've got one other personal feeling about this, and I think this is going to end up being much ado about nothing. I think the word milk is not as valuable as the dairy industry thinks it is. I think a decade from now, no one's going to even want to use the word milk. That's what I think. And Lori, speaking of nuts, I have to share this uh, somewhat related story with you, okay? Yep. Okay. In a flight that was destined to go to Cleveland recently, a woman... Well, she brought her emotional support squirrel 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 on board. And I don't know who allowed her to get onto the plane with the squirrel. But once it was realized that she was there, she was she was asked to leave and she declined. She she and her squirrel said, "Uh uh-uh, we're staying here with our nuts. And well, the police had to come and they had to get everyone off the plane and get this crazy gal, even though the squirrel might have had a vest. You know, it's just no rodents are allowed on planes, emotional support or not. And really, what is she trying to do? You know, do you really want to bring your rodent on a plane? I'd rather sit next to a squirrel than many of the passengers I see flying on planes. Okay, I I happen to agree with you. But, I mean, is the squirrel, does the squirrel have a diaper or, you know, squirrels do things. You can't control elimination of squirrels. So I have to draw the line. No rodents, even cute ones. Okay, enough of this. More with animals today after the break. declawing is? People often mistakenly believe that declawing is a simple procedure that removes a cat's nails. Sadly, this is far from the truth because declawing is actually a painful surgery in which the last bone of each toe is amputated, including skin, tendons, and nerves. 
If performed on a person, it would be like amputating each finger at the last joint. Besides the immediate risk of surgery, like infection and bleeding, the pain cat's experience continues long after the surgery, preventing them from walking normally and leading to arthritis. Often, after declawing, cats will stop using their litter boxes, choosing carpet, beds, or piles of clothing instead. And without their claws, their first line of defense, many declawed cats will feel stressed and begin biting. Plus, if your cat happens to get outside, she'll need her claws to defend herself from other animals. Most people get their cats declawed to try to prevent unwanted scratching and damage to furniture. But scratching is a natural behavior that is important for cats. Declawed cats cannot stretch or knead normally. Why would anyone want to take that away from a cat? The bottom line is declawed cats can suffer lifelong discomfort and disability. It's not difficult to modify the scratching behaviors of a cat, such as having a few sturdy scratching posts around the house and using toys and catnip to encourage their use. Did you know that many countries have banned declawing? And many veterinarians in the U.S. refuse to perform the procedure because it is unnecessary and cruel. So those are the facts about declawing. There's just no reason to do this to your cats. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. Listeners of Animals Today know at least a bit about orangutans in the wild and the threats that they face. We know to avoid palm oil-containing products, for instance, to help preserve the habitats of the orangutans. But just how dire is the situation for them? And what more can we do here in North America to keep them from going extinct? I'm pleased to welcome Leif Cox. He is president and founder of the Orangutan Project. Welcome. Hi. Great to be here. Tell us about the Orangutan Project. When was it started? What are its goals mm-hmm. and main activities? Tell us a little bit about it. I started in 1998. The goal is to save the critically endangered orangutan species from extinction. Although with compassion, um, we help and fund the rescue, rehabilitation, and release of orphan orangutans. Our major goal is to secure five to eight complete functioning ecosystems in Indonesia where orangutans can survive in sustainable numbers. How bad is the situation right now for these uh, great apes? It's bad for all great apes, but particularly for orangutans. In fact, um, the conservation of wild mammals in Asia is far more critical than any other place on the earth. And so the orangutan is the most critically endangered of the the great apes and we really only have the next few years um, certainly within um, my working lifetime to turn the situation around otherwise there may be some orangutans around but the populations will be unsustainable and they'll eventually fall into extinction. So explain how it works with the loss of their natural habitat. Uh, How is that Mm -hmm. being destroyed and who is responsible for that? It's really about Although we know that you can actually make more money um, per hectare sustainably from the attack rainforest, what they do is they seek to compress the profit from the many to the few 
compress the profit from the long term to the short term. So what they do, they destroy the forest for the value of the trees alone, and then they will put whatever short-term monoculture, such as palm oil, pulp paper, or rubber plantation, on the forest to make you know very good money for a short period until that monoculture collapsed, leaving a wasteland. Now, you said they. Do we know who they are and how is this permitted to happen? Mm-hmm. Well, you can characterize in general that, um, you know, and it's, it's very characteristic of, of these um, former colonies. We allowed them to become independent only by taking on debt, which kept us as a as Western interest to allow, allow us to exploit resources from them extremely cheaply. And so I guess you can characterize a few Indonesians as selling out their, um, their country to foreign interests uh, for short-term gain and you know, ruining the long-term economic basis for their country. But of course, it's, it's not as simple as that. Um, if the government of these third world countries do not go along with this scenario, there's often a military coup to correct things for the exploitation to continue, as such has happened in 1965 in Indonesia, where over one million Indonesians were killed. What is the natural range of the orangutan? Um, orangutans, although existed all the way from southern China to the island of Java, uh, now be- really only exist on two islands, um, Sumatra and Borneo, um, where 80% of the rainforest habitat they they once held on those islands is gone. So the remaining orangutans predominantly exist in degraded forests outside of protected habitat, and that's where we're concentrating on saving the last remaining orangutans and piece together the, um, the our last chance to have functioning ecosystems for their survival. So as I'm reviewing some of the things on your website, and by the way, I would invite uh, listeners to go uh, visit the website. There's a wealth of information there, lots of great videos and uh, sponsorship opportunities. Uh, You talk about logging for paper, among many things, you talk about logging for paper, uh, the impact of fires, and then palm oil, and then Mm -hmm. poaching. Can you take each one Mm -hmm. of those in, in turn, starting with logging and if I go to the local store and buy some paper, can I be mm-hmm. assured that it's not uh, harming the rainforest? Oh, no. It, it's, um, I guess we have to understand from a, a biologist's point of view, no um, monoculture is sustainable. So if you're talking about a palm oil plantation or a case of pulp paper uh, monoculture, which is what they use in Indonesia or rubber plantation monoculture, none of them are sustainable. That's, and if you say, talk about sustainable palm oil, you really don't understand what the word means. Hmm. Um, that's just not how nature works. That's not how agriculture works in the long term. And so the, the usual scenario is, um, and it's often linked to the, the uh, election cycle. So if I want to get elected, I need money. A businessman will give me money, and the payoff if I get elected is I will give him a concession of forest. Um, he can then make millions by cutting the trees and um, selling the, the wood for us. Yeah. And then with that money in his pocket, he will look for more short-term gain by putting whatever 
um, monoculture that will give them the, the maximum short-term return to extract the money from the land and, of course, displace the people and ruin their environmental services they gain from the forest and, of course, destroying the planet because um, you know anywhere between 20 and 30% a year of global warming comes from the destruction of the rainforest. Talk about uh, poaching, if you would. Mm-hmm. Most likely, poaching is, is, a, is a direct result of the orangutans losing the habitat and from the clearing of the forest, um, they become more accessible, they start to starve, and they um, try to go into the, the former areas which they once had trees or into, into local villages to try to find food so they don't die. And then they're easily picked up by the poachers where they, um, they will kill the males and the females, um, probably just and eat them. Um, but then they will try to collect the surviving infants to sell on the illegal pet trade to oh, get boy. anywhere from $20 US in a village to 2000 US if they can get it into uh, a market in a, in a major city in Indonesia. And I think you mentioned that displaying that you have a pet orangutan is somewhat of a status symbol. It shows that you are empowered. Exactly. One of the ironies is it's often actually a traditional gift, for example, for um, a junior officer to give a senior officer in the army as an example, to, you know, as a gift to help with his promotion. And a lot of rich um, Indonesians, even police and army, have orangutans as pets. And what it tells people when they come visit them, because everyone knows it's illegal to keep an orangutan as a pet, it's basically telling everybody, look at me, you know I'm above the law, and therefore you, you know, respect and, and fear me. So it, it becomes, ironically, a status symbol, mainly due to the fact that it is obviously illegal. Now, the animals themselves, they are critically endangered, aren't they? That's correct. The, the International Union for Conservation and Nature has classified all the orangutan species as critically endangered, and there's no high category of threat. The next category of threat is extinction. Hmm. You know, something that was really exciting for me to look at were the wildlife protection units. Can you uh, tell us mm-hmm. about them? Um, yeah, we, we've been funding, supporting, and training for many years um, young Indonesians to be trained um, to go out there and patrol the forest. Typically, they go out for 10 days, 10 days of food and supplies as a small team, and they look for poachers, remove snares, report illegal activities, and um, where necessary, um, they go back and collect the appropriate army or police officer to effect an arrest in order to not only protect the orangutans, the elephants and tigers, but the habitat which they need to survive. It looks very rugged. Are these individuals in danger? Um, Yes. Um, Since my time um, of um, supporting the rangers, um, um, four have died. Like been killed? Yes. Oh, my goodness. We're speaking with Leif Cox. He is the founder and president of the Orangutan Project. And after the break, we're going to explore some more ideas of what we all can do to support uh, him and his efforts and uh, help these uh, critically endangered great apes. You are listening to Animals Today. 
I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about leeches. Over the millennia, leeches have been used to treat various human maladies. Yes, leeches. These lowly worm-like bloodsuckers were depicted being used as far back as in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Hippocrates used leeches, but bloodletting by means of leech was really popularized by Galen and was widely used in ancient Rome. This was a time when illness was thought to be from an imbalance of the four humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile, and typically too much blood was implicated. Leeches were perfect for bloodletting and rebalancing those humors. Even through the 1800s, leeches were used for bloodletting in Western medicine. But in modern times, leeches do have a genuine medical use, and in 2004, the use of medicinal leeches, they're actually called Herudo medicinalis, as a medical device, was given approval by the FDA. It turns out that they can be quite helpful in aiding the successful surgical reattachment of severed fingers. After the finger is reattached and arterial blood flow is established, the finger gets congested with blood because the veins are not re-sewn. The pressure in the tissue can get so high as to cause clotting and death of the severed digit. These medicinal leeches placed on the site will latch on and suck the blood out for 40 minutes or so, acting as a temporary venous drainage system. And after they let go, the anticoagulant from their salivary glands remains effective for hours, so a bit of bleeding from the bite persists, which is a good thing. Then, after days, when enough small veins have grown in the finger, the leech treatments can stop. Interestingly, the anticoagulant is called hirudin and is used in a few medicines today due to its potency. Now, if you discover a leech or two on your skin while walking in a rainforest or swimming in a pond inhabited by them, try not to panic. First, look all over your body to know just how many you have. Then, remove them by breaking their suction with the edge of a knife or credit card or a fingernail so they fall off. But don't squeeze them or burn them. Infection is rare, but monitor the wounds closely. And that is your Animals Today Minute for today. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. We are speaking with Leif Cox of the Orangutan Project, and we are realizing they are facing a real tough situation. They are critically endangered, and uh, the Orangutan Project is working on many fronts to uh, keep the species from going extinct. It's a pretty dire situation. Welcome back, Leif. Thank you. Okay, so uh, why don't you uh, continue by telling our listeners uh, where you just returned from and what you were doing. Mm-hmm. We've been working with our local partners and some um, international um, cooperative organizations um, to put together 288,000 hectare ecosystem in northeast Kalimantan. And so we went up there and we spent some time living with the local diet people, the indigenous people there. And um, we, we started meeting with local officials to, um, to put together agreements and for us to 
um, start leasing the, the large tracts of land in order to secure it for conservation. And we're also working with some wonderful people to secure um, the, the agroforestry, which is going to occur under the rainforest canopy. So within eight to 10 years, we can make this ecosystem and, the, and others we're working to secure to be economically sustainable. Um, so it will actually support the local community who will get, do very well out of it. Um, and plus, um, gain enough money for us to provide the Wildlife Protection Unit Administration to secure the ecosystem um, forever. Is it possible to rehabilitate parts of the rainforest that have been cleared and ruined? If, if it's just been logged and recently destroyed, um, it, 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 we can get it back. I mean, you know, in 20 years, it, it looks pretty good. In 50 years, it, 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 it's almost there. 100 years, it, you know, it, it's pretty much back to where it was before. Unfortunately, if you allow palm oil plantation or acacia pulp paper plantation, as two examples, to exist until they basically exhaust the soil and exhaust um, the viability of the soil, that's when it's too late. And basically, it'll be a desert or, at best, grassy scrubland. And um, that's when we, we've, we've lost the battle forever. The organization is trying to raise uh, $20 million, not only $20 million total, but $20 million annually in a very huge visionary effort. Tell us about what you need $20 million a year for. The $20 million is is to secure these FATE ecosystems. So in in the beginning, a lot of that money is about paying the taxes and leases and setting up ecosystems. setting up these sustainable agriculture, doing the community development. A lot of these the kids are, uh, don't get enough food because the multinationals have taken all the land from them. And so supporting local communities directly with food and education. And, of course, rescuing and rehabilitating the orangutans. But as we move through our 20-year plan, a lot of these ecosystems should start becoming on board to start supporting themselves. And so we've got this extinction crisis and this um, 10 to 15 year window to pull it back. And we, we need that amount of money a year to effect a meaningful change to get to secure the ecosystems before they go and set them up as, as viable entities, both economically and ecologically, so we can pass on to the next generation. And you need a big enough area to support the genetic diversity of the uh, species. Exactly. When we when people say, "Oh, look, in ten, fifteen years, orangutans are extinct," they they think the vision of last orangutans killed and, and none. In reality, in hundred years' time, there will be some orangutans in small pockets of forest or rotting in some zoo. Um, however, the genetic viability was gone, so they will eventually go extinct. And so now is the only opportunity we have is to put together ecosystems of 200,000 hectares or more where we can have sustainable populations of the different species of orangutans so they can really survive beyond our generation. Yeah, and so using uh, zoos or even sanctuaries as a arc to some better future time, that just is a fantasy. It is, yeah. I mean, my one of my jobs before I came full-time in the orangutan project. I was a small population geneticist, biologist for, for zoos. And unfortunately, 
all zoos cannot cannot genetically manage uh, sustainable populations of megafauna such as orangutans and elephants. Um, unless they get them from the wild, they will go extinct. So it, it may be difficult to save them in the wild, but it's impossible to save them in captivity. The, the real arc will never be in the zoo. The real arc will be in these ecosystems that we're seeking to create now. Some of our listeners are quite adventuresome and may be interested in taking a tour that uh, supports the organization. Tell us what they can do. Well, one of the wonderful things I do four times a year is, is take um, our sponsors and supporters into the rainforest at very, with varying levels of fitness required, depending on which tour people choose. And a couple of things that happen is I take people on you know, night, nightly talks to take them on the journey. You experience the, the beauty of the rainforest. And, and this is quite magical because this is kind of where we've evolved. In, in, in very many ways, it's like coming home. You get to experience the magnificence of these persons who share our planet, um, which in that itself is, is wonderful. But you get to see genuine conservation. You do ecotourism that doesn't have a negative impact on the environment, on the animals. And you, you, you become integrally and, and viscerally part of the solution. And so it, it's a wonderful experience for many. And um, many of my friends um, who, of course, become my friends after being on the tour ha- have gone two or three times on the tour because it, it's become so rewarding. And uh, there's a new book you want to tell us about. My, my latest book, um, Finding Humanity, is just out and I'm um, promoting it now. And it's very much about taking people on a personal journey to find our humanity and a better way of interacting with the environment and doing things without um, falling prey to despair and apathy um, because of the size and scope of the problem. So I use science, philosophy and my own personal experience to take people on the individual journey. Um, And I'm really finding a lot of people responding to it and, and, and getting a lot of it personally. As, as well as obviously engaging with the cause to save wildlife and in particular, in our case, orangutans. Well, I'll tell you, I look forward to reading that. It can be really tough in this business, and sometimes I do get down. So uh, I look forward to that. And thank you for taking that challenge on. So what's the website where people can uh, learn more and support the organization and take a tour? If you go to the theorangutanproject.org, um, and you'll be re- redirected to your um, local area site and go to um, Get Involved and you can become a regular donor or a major donor, adopt an orphan, um, go on an echo tour and also you can purchase um, books there and, and, um, and, yeah, and get a more deep and meaningful insight into the journey that we're taking together. Leif Cox from the Orangutan Project. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.